Hello, what is up? And welcome to episode 97 of the new Ice City podcast. I'm your host, Vincent Mercagliano of the USA Today Network, and we are gearing up for a big game. I think you could call it one of the biggest games of the season to this point for the New York Rangers, as they will be hosting the NHL best, the 34-5-4 Boston Bruins on Thursday night at Madison Square Garden. The all-star break and bye week for the Rangers is just around the corner. And as we've talked about on previous episodes, the vibes around this team and the feeling around this team over the course of the last 19-20 games since they turned their season around has been very, very positive. But this will be a measuring stick game against the Bruins. The Bruins have been lights out all season. They have not lost two games in a row yet this season, which is a pretty crazy stat to wrap your head around. And so to help us get ready for the game, to break down what's been going so well with the Bruins so far this season through 40 plus 45 games, we're going to have Matt Porter, who covers the team for the Boston Globe, on this week's episode. We'll get to that interview in just a little bit. And like I said, it's not just going to be about previewing this game on Thursday because the Bruins have been, pretty much anybody you ask will hands down call them the best team in the NHL so far this season. They have emerged as the Stanley Cup favorite. So we're going to have Matt on, who's going to give us a pretty thorough breakdown of all the things that have been going right for Boston and a pretty thorough look at how few holes there are on this roster and how deep this team has become. They are no longer a team that relies on one top-heavy, really good first line. Their lineup up and down is loaded with talent. You even look, Gerard Gallant pointed out today at the press conference, you look at their third line, Taylor Hall, a former Hart Trophy winner, is playing on their third line right now. So that's how good this Boston team is. So again, it's going to be a really big test for the Rangers on Thursday at MSG, and Matt Porter is going to help us get ready for that. The Rangers will come into this game still relatively hot. They've won three of their last four games, but over the the longer stretch, the big picture, the important thing for the Rangers is that since early December, you look at their last 19 games, they've won 14 of them. They're 14-3-2 in that stretch, which is the best record in the NHL in that span for any team other than Boston. So the Rangers have been right there as one of the hottest teams in the league for the good portion of two months now. And so that, again, is what makes this game have this big game, almost playoff-like feel. You think about this last week for the Rangers, and there's some things that I want to nitpick. We're going to get into that, but I I did want to start with recapping where we left off and the previous podcast came out right before the Rangers hosted the Dallas Stars last Thursday. Now that game for 59 plus minutes you could say in a lot of ways was a pretty ho-hum relatively boring uneventful game did not seem like one of those games that would stand out to you and you would think back on months later but it turned out to be what I believe is the most memorable win for the Rangers so far this season. Of course, 
If you haven't heard, you've been living under a rock. I, I don't know why you'd be listening to a Rangers podcast if you weren't aware of what happened in that game. But Keandre Miller comes through with the game-tying goal with less than one second left on the clock. You could look at a few different angles. I, I think I wrote it was 0.9 seconds it looked like to me when the puck crossed the goal line. I've seen some people pay, say 0.7 or 0.5, whatever you want to say. It was under a, It was under a second for sure when that puck went in, but it clearly beat the buzzer and sent that game to overtime. And then Adam Fox finishes off that win with a sick backhanded shot. And the building, Madison Square Garden, on that night, by far the loudest that it's been this season. It sounded to me almost as loud, and I've heard people say it was just as loud, as it was when the Rangers beat the Pittsburgh Penguins in Game 7 of their first-round series in the playoffs last season. The Madison Square Garden press box, I think I've told you guys this before, when that place gets loud enough, it shakes. And it definitely shook when Keandre tied the game and then when Adam Fox later won the game in overtime. So an incredible win for the Rangers. The type of win that I think when you tell the story of this season will certainly be written about and talked about and discussed for a long time to come. The feeling in the locker room after that was jovial. This game was a signature win in the sense that it harkened back to that playoff run and the kind of feeling that the Rangers had where they were never out of a game. Then they bottled it up and were able to use it effectively in that win over Dallas. The Keandre goal was was huge. Keandre continues to produce at at a very, very good pace. I think it's a seven-game point streak that he's riding now. But a guy I also think we need to mention as far as making a play that helped the Rangers win that game, Adam Fox and the finish that he had in overtime was incredible. But Mika Zibanejad, if you go back and you watch that sequence that led to that overtime goal and the way that he was able to not only pick a Dallas player's pocket on one end of the ice that created the rush opportunity that led to the goal. But after the initial shot on goal that was saved and the rebound and the loose puck, and it looks like Dallas is getting possession back again, Mika again scratching and clawing and just that never-ending nonstop motor that he has, once again able to create a takeaway and get the puck to Panarin, who then eventually gets the puck to Fox And that's how the Rangers win the game. So the effort level, I mean, all three guys made great plays on that sequence in overtime, but the effort level and the knack that Mika Zibanejad has for creating these turnovers has been outstanding this season. I can tell you, guys in the locker room, when you talk to them, are starting to push for Mika to be in the Selkie conversation. I think it's a long way to go before we really narrow down that field and figure out who the front runners might be. I know the analytics don't always look great for Mika, but if you watch the plays that he makes, and and if I'm being honest with you guys, I'm working on a story that I'm excited about with this. I've talked to a lot of guys in the last handful of days. Chris Kreider lit up when when I asked about this topic. You watch those little plays that Mika makes, the way that he's able to make those long strides and get his stick into passing lanes or lift guys' sticks from behind and get to these loose pucks and create these turnovers, 
it it is really uncanny, and it is, it is a driving force for the Rangers. He, in my mind, has absolutely been their best defensive forward, especially when you consider the assignments that he gets. I know a lot of people will look at the analytics, and, and Jimmy Vc, for example, who has been a really good defensive player for the Rangers this season, he gets a lot of love, and deservedly so. But VC is mostly playing against bottom six forwards. Mika is going head-to-head with the best center on the opposing team every single night. And the plays that he makes, and then you factor in his PK work and the shorthanded opportunities that he creates, he just always feels like a turnover waiting to happen. And I mean a takeaway waiting to happen, a, a positive turnover for the Rangers that gets them possession and fuels their offense. So Mika definitely is a guy that I want to write about, and I think we have to appreciate his effort not only on that overtime play, which was tremendous, but his overall effort in a lot of those situations this season. Now, that dramatic win, I think, in some ways takes precedent, and rightfully so. It was it was a very memorable win, as we just discussed. But that has sort of overshadowed what has otherwise been a relatively, can we call it, uninspiring week. The Rangers in that game against Dallas were shut out for... 59 minutes and 59 seconds. So it was a game where they were really struggling to generate offense for the most part. The defense was good, but the offense was not there. Then after that, they lose at home to the Montreal Canadiens, who are a last place team in the Atlantic Division. They did bounce back the following day when they went to Columbus on Monday and they beat the Blue Jackets. And the first 40 minutes of that game, I think, were solid. The Rangers played smart. They took care of business. They did what they had to do to beat another last place team. But overall, you look at these last three games, the Rangers have won five on five goal in the last three games combined. You look at the trend since Christmas, and I wrote about this in my column that came out Wednesday morning on lohud.com slash sports slash Rangers. You look at the offensive trends for the Rangers in these last 10 games since Christmas. Not great. 16 goals in those 10 games at five on five. That's an average of 1.6, and that's trending in the wrong direction. Again, only one five on five goal in the last three games. And then on top of that, you look at the power play, which in the past, including last season, when the Rangers weren't always a great five on five team, they won games with goaltending and special teams. That power play was such a weapon for them last season. Well, right now, That power play is like 15th or 16th in the league. It's very much mediocre in the middle of the pack, and it's getting worse. One for their last 16. That one goal came from the second unit. The first unit hasn't scored a power play goal in nearly two weeks, or actually at this point, over two weeks. So that feels very stagnant and stale and predictable right now. I've written about this a few times, including in that column that I just mentioned, but it just feels like, Everything is trying to flow to that left circle where Mika Zibanejad is waiting for the one-timer. And as good as that one-timer is, and it is no doubt about it, the best weapon that the Rangers have on the power play. The two things that you know they're trying to get to are Mika in the left circle and Chris Kreider at the net front. Now, Kreider missed three games with an upper body injury, so that made that Mika one-timer even more predictable. But if teams know that it's coming and they're able to cheat in that direction, It just feels like the Rangers are hitting a wall and banging their heads up against the wall repeatedly. And it's 
shouldn't come as that much of a surprise that they're not getting much results recently. I wrote about this at length in my column. I believe they need, it was easy to dismiss this in the past because when Ryan Strom was around especially, I remember asking David Quinn and then I remember asking Gerard Gallant last season about wanting to get a lefty in that opposite circle so that you have the threat of a one-timer on both sides of the ice. And what Quinn and Gallant both said was, we want to get our best forwards on the ice. Our best forwards are all right-handed, except for Kreider, who we know is at the net front. And that's what we're going to roll with. And when the results were there, it was hard to argue. But now the results aren't there. And so I feel like something needs to change. And for me, I would give strong consideration to one of the left-handed young forwards. There's a few to choose from, Kako, Hedl, Lafreniere. I think I would lean towards Kako. If you put Kako in that right circle, then the question is, what do you do with Mika, Panarin, and Trocek? Because those are the other forwards besides Kreider on that power play. I think I would move Trocek down to the second unit. I would shift Mika into Trocek's bumper position. Now, that might sound sacrilegious because of how good Mika's one-timer is, but Mika in that bumper position can still find lanes to use that one-timer. I believe he can still be a shooting threat, and he's a smart enough player where I do think that he can float around and pick his spots and find shooting lanes as well as passing lanes. And then you put Panarin. He's playing on the right circle for the most part now, which doesn't give him any angle to shoot whatsoever because he's also a right-handed shooter. You move him to the left circle, then A, he becomes a shooting threat, which he isn't right now, and B, he's also a guy that can hold the puck, move around with the puck, and be a playmaker because we know how good of a passer he is. So I would have Panarin in the left circle, Zibanejad in the bumper, Kako in the right circle, and of course you're not going to mess with Kreider at the net front, and you're not going to mess with Adam Fox at the point. But I think that that unit would change the look. It would have playmaking and shooting threats in every single spot, as opposed to now where when Panarin gets the puck on the right side, you know the only thing he can do with it is pass. I think that that would be the best way for the Rangers to go, but I don't think it's going to happen, quite frankly. Gerard Gallant, every time I've asked him about this, has basically shrugged it off. It doesn't sound like he has any interest in changing that, which is interesting because He has no problem changing the five-on-five lines all the time, but the power play, they seem very, very reluctant to change. So based on what I saw at Wednesday's practice with Kreider coming back into the lineup, it's going to be what we've seen. Trocek will be in the bumper, Panarin on the right circle, Mika on the left circle. So I guess I'm going to keep talking about this. And listen, if they snap out of it, then it becomes less of an issue. But right now, they're not producing, like I said, over two weeks since the last time that top unit scored. And if this continues, I think the calls for change are only going to get louder. So offense scoring right now, whether it's five on five or the power play, it's not where you want it to be for the Rangers. Chris Kreider is coming back. Of course, that should help. I I wrote this in my story and it bears repeating here. Chris Kreider is one of those guys who I think takes grief from certain segments of the fan base, but seeing how stagnant offensively the Rangers were in these three games that he missed. That should give you more appreciation for what he means to the lineup and the value that he brings for the Rangers. So they're slotting him right back on that top line with Zabanajad and Kako. That's how it was at practice on Wednesday. 
The second line looks like it'll go back to Panarin, Trocek, and Kratzoff. I still have my questions about that line. Trocek has one point in his last seven games, which is a stark contrast to what we saw prior to Christmas when he had scored, I believe it was 13 points over the course of nine games. What's the difference? Before Christmas break, when he was hot, he was not playing with Panarin. Now he's gone cold and he is playing with Panarin. I'm feeling more and more like that just isn't working for the Rangers. I know they would love to make it work. And in some ways, it's good that they're giving them time to try and build chemistry and not yanking them around recently. But I just keep feeling like Trocek is better off with guys who play a simpler, more north-south game. He really excelled in that role when he was playing with Kreider and Vesey. So ultimately, I do think if this continues, Gallant will need to consider moving Trocek away from Panarin and then giving Philip Heedle, who again has been mostly encouraging and shown a lot of growth this season. I think he's earned it. I think he deserves a chance to play with Panarin for an extended stretch. That was another topic I addressed in that column. So the second line, they keep going back to the same combination of Panarin, Trocek, and Kratzoff, but it, it really hasn't worked very well so far. So I think that's another thing to keep an eye on. The third line for Thursday's game against Boston will be Lafreniere, Heedle, and Barclay Goudreau. Now, Lafreniere has obviously been a hot topic recently. I don't want to go too deep into it because I feel like we've discussed this at length already. But the fact is he got those three games on the top line and on the top power play unit while Kreider was out. And he didn't really do much to convince you that he needs to stay in a prominent position like that. Give Gallant credit here. He played him over 18 minutes in all three of those games. Lafreniere got a lot of ice time, and I know that's something fans have been clamoring for, is wanting to see him get more ice time and better situational usage. Well, he got it in these last few games, and quite frankly, that line did not look good. I wrote this following the game in Columbus, but that was the only line that got outshot while they were on the ice against the Blue Jackets. The second line, the third line, even the fourth line had really actually good numbers in that game. Those three lines were all in the positive as far as shot margin and scoring chances and possession and those type of things. The first line with Lafreniere, Zabanajad, and Kako in that game against Columbus did not record one shot on goal while all three were on the ice together. Now, the disclaimer is in a four-on-four situation, Kako connected with Mika for a goal, but Lafreniere wasn't on the ice with them. Again, with those three on the ice together, they did not register one shot on goal in that game against Columbus. So that that just didn't work. To me, I still feel like confidence right now is the biggest thing with Lafreniere. I know Gallant and the Rangers were hoping that that scratch in Tampa just before New Year's Eve was going to wake him up, was going to motivate him. But it definitely seems like that strategy has backfired. And it seems like Lafreniere is overthinking now. He's lacking confidence right now. He's playing with less purpose. He's had a few plays where you've seen him set up teammates with pretty good passes, but he hasn't scored a goal in 16 straight games now. The defense remains a concern, and I find myself wondering more and more recently. They have him in Kreider's spot on the power play, playing that net front position. They keep telling him to get to the net, and it seems that they're really harping on doing the dirty work for him. But 
This guy was drafted because he's a playmaker, because of his skill, his vision, his ability to make things happen when the puck is on his stick. And I feel like they're not asking him to play that role right now, and it's kind of got him caught in between. It's like it's it's not defined. It's, he doesn't really know what he is or what he's best at or how he can make the most out of his talent right now. He's trying to do this net front thing. He's trying to be more physical. But isn't this a guy who they drafted to be a big-time playmaker and be a guy who racks up assists? I mean, you look at his numbers in juniors, a lot of goals and assists, but his assist numbers are way higher. This guy was a playmaker at his core. And it just feels like right now the Rangers aren't really asking him to do that. And he doesn't seem totally comfortable in any role that they're putting him in recently. So it just feels like lack of direction and and lack of confidence. And and he does not feel like a guy who feels really good about his game right now. And that's unfortunate. You, You hope at some point he snaps out of it. You have to believe things will get better. This is a guy who had almost 20 goals last year and really seemed to be trending in the right direction. But this little small sample size of three games that he got playing on the top line and playing on the top power play did not go, if we're being honest, the way that you hoped it would go. So we'll see what happens with Lafreniere. But right now he's going back to the third line and back to the second power play unit. So with that, let's shift gears and talk about the Bruins and talk about this game on Thursday night. Again, this narrative about the Rangers offense sputtering could flip in an instant if they play well Thursday. And I do get the sense that they're going to be up for this game. They seemed really excited about it following Wednesday's practice. Chris Kreider, immediately when everybody went up to him to talk to him and see if he was going to play and how he's feeling, he was asked if he thinks he'll be ready to go. He looked up with the most serious look. And Kreider, trust me, is a pretty serious guy. He looked up with this look on his face that said, hell yeah. He didn't say anything. He just nodded. But but you knew that this guy was pumped to be back and ready for this game. And, and you definitely got those vibes throughout. Gerard Gallant talked about it. A couple of the players talked about it. They're excited for this game. They definitely look at this as a big challenge. And to get us ready for that challenge that is the Boston Bruins, the red-hot, scorching Boston Bruins, let's hear a little bit from Matt Porter. Now let's welcome into the show a guest who is going to help us get set for the big matchup coming up at Madison Square Garden on Thursday. That would be Matt Porter. He covers the Boston Bruins as well as the entire NHL for the Boston Globe. So nobody better to help us break it down than Matt. Matt, how are you? Thanks for coming on. I hope everything's going well. Yeah, doing great here. It's uh, I just I'm back settled on East Coast time after going out west for a week with the Bruins uh, last week. So nice to be back in in town. Uh, not going on this particular trip uh, down to the New York uh, metro area, but I will be obviously following uh, from up here. Cool. Yeah, I, I know the feeling about the West Coast time difference. We've had a little bit of a break from that recently, but we are preparing for we got Vancouver and Calgary and Edmonton and all that coming up in a few weeks. So I'll be back. I'll be back trying to figure that out pretty soon myself. Yep, nice time for it too. Yeah, uh, yeah. they haven't been. They haven't been February. I'm. I'm not actually going on that trip because I'm like, one time going to the West Coast for a week is enough for me. We got a little kid here, so it's like you know, you pick and choose your battles, I guess. Yeah, I know that feeling as well. I just saw you. Ha- yeah, I have the little one running around the house right now, so I won't take up too much of your time. I definitely, <laughs> I definitely can sympathize with that. 
Um, so let's just dive right into it because obviously they're not in the same division, the Rangers and the Bruins, but there's always that New York-Boston rivalry. I know a lot of people have been paying attention to the Bruins this year. And you look at the recent history, I think from the outside looking in, it can feel like a little bit of a surprise because last year the Bruins are eliminated in the first round of the playoffs. They come back with what I think to a lot of people, at least on paper, looks like a very similar roster. And yet here they are. They're 34, 5, and 4. The points percentage is like almost 850 right now, which is hard to believe. By far the best record of the NHL. And you talk to people around the league and everybody is pointing to the Bruins as what feels like the favorite for the Stanley Cup right now. So how can you, I guess, for people in New York or people from the outside, explain how the results have just jumped the way that they have so far this season? It it really has been crazy, Vince. And like, you know, I think myself, I can't be alone in this. I think everybody's waiting to see like, all right, when are they going to hit a lull? You know, they haven't lost two games in a row yet. I mean, it's, I mean, we're midway through January. This is insane. Um, I, I feel, I, I can't imagine what like Carolina, the Devils, the Lightning, the Leafs, like the Rangers are having a really good season. I mean, the Rangers are 57 points right now in 45 games. That's a really good season. They're, they're definitely up there as far as teams that are in the hunt. And yet nobody's been able to come close to the Bruins. They're 10 points clear of the Hurricanes right now in the standings, which is just, it's just absurd. Um, you know, the, the big changes, I get asked this a lot. Obviously, people want to know what's different. And, you know, the coaching is definitely different. Jim Montgomery comes in as a more player-friendly coach. And I, I hate to reduce it to that because technically he's changed a lot with this team. Like when you look at the way they break out now, the way they forecheck now, the way they handle their neutral zone now, it's different than it was under Bruce Cassidy. But what Jim Montgomery was smart enough to do is to realize that there was already a really good defensive structure structure here, which was installed like by, by Claude Julian, you know, two coaching cycles ago. I mean, this was, you know, a, a long ago thing that started when Julian took over. Zdeno Chara was, you know, in his infancy as captain here. And he installed this, this really strong commitment throughout every level of the organization to defense and keeping the puck out of the net. Bruce Cassidy didn't change that at all, really. He just basically kept the same thing, added a little bit more kind of up-tempo when it came to getting his defense activated. But he was hard on players. And when you talk to guys like Jake DeBrusque and Trent Frederick and and some of the other guys who, you know, didn't stick with the lineup, um, like a Jack Stadnika who was traded uh, to Vancouver midseason, you know, those guys were really, you know, wearing it last year at the end of the year. You know, they they were really struggling to find their place in the NHL and, and in this, you know, in this organization, they've been told, you know, they're, I mean, their first, second round draft picks. I mean, they've been told, you know, you're going to be part of our next wave after guys like Bergeron and Marshan and Krejci, uh, Tuka Rask, et cetera, age out uh, of the lineup, you know, of being viable NHL players, you know, you guys are up next, but they weren't feeling it from their coach. You know, their coach was pretty hard on them and it's stuff that we saw, but, you know, it's hard to argue with Cassidy's results. He made the playoffs six years in a row. So Montgomery comes in. He's all positivity. He has a history with a guy like Trent Frederick back when, you know, they, they have St. Louis connections. Um, you know, DeBrusque, you know, just needed somebody else, you know, to, to uh, you know, to be telling him basically what he needs to do out there. It's kind of the same stuff. I mean, it's just play harder, you know, don't give up on the walls, don't circle around on the back check, you know, like have – have a purpose with what you're doing as far as the checking game goes. We know we can score goals. We know he's really fast. So when you combine that 
you know, a healthy Nick Felino. And there's just up and down the lineup. There are guys that are playing so far above their level. And I think a lot of it is coaching, but a lot of it is health. And a lot of it too is just guys like David Pasternak going from a great scorer in the NHL to one of the best, you know, scorers in the NHL in the world. Uh, David Krejci coming back, Patrice Bergeron. I don't know what he's found as far as the fountain of youth goes, but he looks like he can play another three years. It really is completely up and down the lineup. A team that is is en- either entering its prime or staying in its prime knows that it's good, has that confidence, has that belief. There's the last ride feel to it with Bergeron and Krejci. I know I'm throwing so much out there, but it's like it really is, you know, top of the bottom, top to the bottom. Um, you know, guys just kind of hitting, and it's been really fun to watch because the hockey, they, the brand of hockey they play is immensely entertaining. Well, it takes a lot of things going right for a team to have the run of success that they've had. Y- you mentioned not losing two games in a row all season, which is incredible. I-, I happen to be looking for a story I was writing today. The Rangers really turned around their season in early December. They've been on a hot streak. I think they're 14, three and two in their last 19 games. So I wanted to get a feel for how they rank around the league in that span. And I'm looking at points percentage in that span while the Rangers rank second in the league behind the Bruins. I'm looking at goals allowed in that span while the Rangers rank second in the league behind the Bruins. So it's like the Rangers have been doing all these things right and stacking wins recently, but they're still not at the level that the Bruins are at. You mentioned Pasternak, who's having a really, really good offensive season. I think he's third in the league in points right now. And I know for so long, we always looked at him being on the same line as Marchand and Bergeron. And that was like the Bruins go to. That was a line that pretty much nobody else in the league could match, maybe outside of Edmonton, I guess. So now correct me if I'm wrong. I don't know how long they've had this arrangement, but it looks like Pasternak's been on the second line recently with Marchand and Bergeron on the top. And then even Taylor Hall, I think might be skating sometimes in the third line. So that's, that's incredible depth when you look at it. I mean, is that, has that kind of been the arrangement for most of the season? And is that sort of the way that they're beating all these teams now, instead of relying heavily on one line, it looks like they're very deep up and down that lineup. Yeah, you hit on it, but it's, it's only kind of half the story because what they've been able to do at this point in the year, like, you know, David Krejci, when, when he was, you know, playing in the, before he went to check last year, cause I don't know if people know he took the, it took last year off, um, you know, play in front of his friends and family, you know, back home, the grandparents, et cetera, um, in Chechia. And, and, you know, he wanted to do that before he got too old, you know, while he was still a viable player. And then he comes back and his adjustment's been incredible, but he really hasn't had wingers, you know, for most of his, the last, like, five or six years of his Bruins career before this year. Um, you know, he had guys like Carson Kuhlman, you know, on his wing and no slight to Carson Kuhlman. He's an NHL player, but you know, he's a guy they wind up waving. Um, you know, he did not have the Nathan Horton, Milan Lucic is in their primes uh, running on his wings. So I don't know if it was to placate him, but I think really, you know, him getting David Pasternak again, world-class offensive player and, excellent defensive player as well now, by the way, um, on his right wing. And then Pavel Zaka, you know, a guy who is kind of like, you know, one of those versatile players that every team wants who can play up and down your lineup, you know, can make some plays, can, you know, defend well, doesn't really, you know, you don't have to say, okay, he's our number one left wing or number two left wing, or he's nothing. I mean, he can kind of play everywhere in your lineup. So they've been outstanding as a line, the three check guys. Um, 
they can beat up a lot of teams as, with that as their second line. When they need to go nuclear uh, with Pasternak up with Martian and Bergeron, they'll do that against top-heavy teams. Like Toronto came in to, to Causeway Street here in Boston uh, on Saturday, and they had a balanced lineup. They had you know the checks on line two. Uh, I, Jake Debreska's hurt right now, so they had Craig Smith on line one with Martian and Bergeron, and and then Taylor Hall. You know, you mentioned. I mean, what a luxury it is to have him and Charlie Coyle on your third line. I mean, Hall was MVP what five years ago. Um, you know, but he's, you know, he's not that kind of elite kind of playmaking offensive force, creative, you know, guy. So as a third line, you know, north south checker with Charlie Coyle. I mean, that's a a great lineup. Um, so you have that. But then when Toronto loads up with Marner and Matthews on the same line, then they can put Pasternak up with Marchand and Bergeron in match lines at home. Um, I don't think they'll have as much success, you know, in Manhattan if the Rangers decide to load up and they decide to go that way. But that's kind of what's been working for them. They've been playing it situationally. They will split up Marcia and Bergeron, Pasternak if they have to. They'll play them together if they have to. And I think the biggest thing is, you know, I mentioned off the top of this of this answer here with Krejci, you know, not getting the wingers that he wanted. I think now with everybody up and down the lineup for Jim Montgomery, there's proof of concept where, you know, they know that if, you know, they don't, it doesn't have to be the big line with Pasternak up with Bergeron and Marchand and then everybody else figure it out. You know, they know that if they go kind of a more balanced lineup with different guys playing with different guys, they can make it work because they've seen it, you know, throughout the course of the season. Now there's confidence in, all the other lines, and that's really going to help them come to playoffs or injuries or anything like that. The crazy thing is really a pretty cool story. What is he, 35 or 36 now? Going to be, yeah, 37 in April. So he's definitely getting up there. Yeah, so, I mean, this is a guy who was considered a really good second-line center for a long time for Boston, but he takes not takes the year off. He was still playing hockey, but he wasn't playing NHL hockey for a year, and now he's back. And it makes that whole lineup look so much deeper, so much more complete. And the way that they put it all together is really pretty incredible. And then you look on the back end. I had Charlie McAvoy on my Norris ballot last year. He's one of the best defensemen in the league, no doubt about it. But then a guy like I know, for example, Adam Fox, I think is definitely going to be in the Norris trophy conversation again this year. He's been the Rangers MVP, in my opinion. He's he's been great. But you look at a lot of the the chatter around other guys, and especially when you look at some of the underlying numbers and the analytics and the possession numbers, stuff like that. Hampus Lindholm is right at the top of a lot of those categories. So it seems like having him on their second pair has really given the decor a lot of balance. So that's another area, it seems, of strength. There really don't seem to be many areas of weakness. The the goalie tandem seems to be working really well for them. Like the the defensive game, I guess if you could speak to that a little bit, seems to be really solid for them as well. Yeah, and and they've built this, they've built the decor that I think, you know, a lot of teams want, which is you have mobile guys, you know, on every pair. You have length, you know, you don't have a lot of hard hitters like they're, you know, everybody kind of wants to know now what are the Bruins going to do at the trade deadline? I mean, I could see them. There's been kind of chatter about a Luke Shen, that type of, you know, big body who comes in as your seven or eight. Um, you know, maybe he gets in, a, you know, a couple of playoff games or whatever. I mean, I think that's kind of where they're at. You know, they're not looking to pay what Florida paid for Ben Sherratt by giving out a first round pick. I mean, that's not the type of trade that they like to make unless it's a they take a huge swing for a guy like Bo Horvat, you know, where you're, you're giving up roster players, but you're getting one of those centers of the future that they're looking for in the post Bergeron and Krejci world. Um, but about the back end, you know, they've, they've really built it. Well, um, the Lindholm, the Hampus Lindholm trade for me, 
you know, Don Sweeney gets beat up a ton in this market because, well, most recently the Mitchell Miller thing, which is, I mean, I've like everybody, I've gone to the, to the mad about this. It's just indefensible, um, incredibly, incredible unforced error, uh, you know, in an otherwise dream of a season, like nothing, everything they touch turns to gold and then this happens. Um, but beyond that, Sweeney's made a lot of really smart trades. The trailer, Taylor Hall trade, you know, where Hall had a three team trade list essentially forced his way here. You know, you, you got to give him, you know, the Bruins credit for being the team that Taylor Hall wants to go to, but the Hampus Lindholm trade, I mean, they gave away essentially nothing. They gave away a bunch of picks who could, which could pan out, but you know, they, they get a guy in and Lindholm that was on a bad team. He comes here. He doesn't have to be the guy uh, like he had to be in the latter years of his Anaheim tenure. And you don't give up a ton for him, at least not right now, in assets that are NHL ready. And you can pair him with Charlie McAvoy as a left-right pair. You can pair him with Brandon Carlo to, you know, as a six foot six guy as a shutdown pair. Um, he can play your power play. He can play penalty kill. Same thing with McAvoy. And, you know, that does so much for guys that are kind of, you know, I don't want to say on the fringes of their decor, but, you know, guys there who are a little bit more specialized, like a, like a Matt Grizzly, you know, five foot nine defenseman, you know, he's, you really don't want to expose him too much. He's a really good defender, but, you know, with his, his feet and his stick rather than his body. So if you compare him, you know, with a guy like McAvoy, they played together at Boston university way back in the day. I mean, they have tons of chemistry, know where each other's going to be, know how to run little pick plays to get out of the D zone. Um, you know, it's just, it's such a luxury, um, you know, and then that allows you to have Connor Clifton and Derek Forbert on your third pair. Clifton is at a great year. He's in a contract year like Pasternak, by the way, um, and has really come into his own as a, as, as a very solid all around defenseman with, uh, who wants to jump up in the play. And then Derek Forbert is your classic penalty kill guy. And, and the, you know, the Montgomery, you know, addition, to, to, to this this group having Jim Montgomery with his principles where he doesn't want to mess around in the D zone he, like any coach he wants to get out of there quickly but he has different little kind of ways guys are making moves out of the D zone that they weren't under Bruce Cassidy where you know maybe they're spinning off the check or they're holding on to the puck just a little bit longer than they would um, you know he's given them stuff to think about they you know technically speaking I mean, one of the things they do a lot now is use the weak side D um, you know it, they have confidence, just kind of throw it to the middle of the slot where they know a guy will be. And then they have a quick exit out of the zone. It's worked all season long. Teams don't really have an answer for it. Uh, maybe they'll start to, especially as teams are, you know, really kind of gearing up for the playoffs and buckling down uh, on their four checks and defense and all that. Uh, but with what Jim Montgomery's shown so far, I mean, it's possession hockey. Uh, he has them playing really confidently and making plays. And, and these are, this is a decor that was, you know, has been good. But they haven't been great, and he's turned them into a puck rushing machine. That obviously helps to have guys like McAvoy and Lindholm leading that charge, though. Yeah, now the Lindholm addition seems to be huge for them. And like I said, you look at a lot of analytical categories, and he's right up there at the top with any defenseman in the league this season. So, last thing I want to ask you before I let you get out of here: Now, the Rangers saw them earlier this season; it didn't work out very well. It looked like the Bruins were the much better team that night. It's hard to argue with the Bruins as as anything other than being the favorite in the Eastern Conference right now. But I know you cover the whole league. So as you size up the Eastern Conference, which 
has some depth, obviously, right there in Boston's division. You've got Tampa, which is the team that everybody feels like they have to go through. The Metro is is loaded. The Metro has six teams that believe that they're playoff worthy and only at least, you know, at most five of them are going to be able to get in. So so how do you kind of size up this Eastern Conference right now? Yeah, it's I think everybody's looking at the Atlantic and saying, you know, that's where that's where it's toughest. Um, you know, that Tampa Toronto matchup is looking is looking pretty locked in at this point because, you know, you have those two teams that are behind the Bruins, but certainly, you know, right there neck and neck uh, within two points of each other. And then, you know, the two wildcard teams right now are are Washington and Pittsburgh with the Islanders right behind them. Um, And then there's a four point gap to the the Panthers, the Sabres, the Red Wings, Flyers, et cetera. Um, Boy, what a disappointment the Panthers have been this year, by the way, coming off of the President's Trophy. Just has not worked for them. And, and, you know, I don't know what is going to fix them. I'm, I'm going to dig into this a little bit when I go down there for the all-star game. Um, but, you know, what, whatever they can do. Um, you know, Carolina uh, was my Stanley Cup pick this year. I, I think that they're still, you know, very much a good team. I mean, they, you know, you, you look at how they added Brent Burns and Matt, Max Pacioretty for basically nothing, uh, you know, and and they've seen Svechnikov have another good year. Marty Nachos has leveled up. That's been big for them. They're getting excellent goaltending they might have three goalies other teams are looking for one you know they might have three there in carolina um the devils i'm a little bit cooler on at this point i'm um i've just watched them kind of lose their way a little bit you know mid-season after starting off so well um still dangerous though i think there's plenty there i'm not convinced of the goaltending there um the rangers they're always dangerous to me when you have the frontline offensive talent that they do I, i think you know i still think galant's a good coach um you know, and it's just like I look at guys like Keandre Miller, who I don't think it's a lot of shine league wide. You know, I know I, I know he makes some mistakes on the back end, but boy, he can be a play killing machine, you know, when when he's on uh, with that length and that skating ability. And, you know, I, I think the, the Rangers will be in it. I, I think it's a really it's a really good playoff year, like especially you, know, you look at the Bruins dominating right now. But I think everybody looks at them as ripe for a fall just because they've been going so well. What are they going to have left for the playoffs? You know, how can they keep this going? Where are they going to find the motivation? Um, You know, obviously it's, you know, you got to get, if you're them, you have to get Bergeron another cup, Krejci, Marchand. That's the, that's the goal. um, And that's the thing that's going to drive them. But you you do wonder how much is left. Uh, I will say having covered them uh, up close, obviously I'm there every day. Um, it's they've done a really good job of balancing the minutes, which has been big, you know, because Bergeron's 37, Krejci is about to be, Felino's 35, I believe. He's 34, 35, he's close to it. Marshan is 34. Um, you get a lot of guys that are up around 30 as well. So, you know, if you can get everybody 12 minutes tonight, uh, you know, or, in, or, you know, 12 to 18, kind of keep it in that range, uh, you're doing a good job. And Montgomery's been able to do that. They keep finding ways to stay motivated. Game against Philly yesterday, matinee game. Uh, Monday, you know, MLK days, it's really, you know, it's a bad team. I mean, you know, that they're playing Philly's totally lost their way and Philly's coming off a back-to-back. So you kind of expect them to walk in that game, but you know, they go out and have a dominant performance at home because it's David Krejci's a thousandth game. You know, there's, there's little things every single game, whether it's a guy coming off an injury or playing an old team. I mean, they're the sports psychologists uh, would approve what this team is doing uh, this year, trying to stay motivated, but I do wonder as we get into a very heavy February and March schedule for them, how are they going to look, you know, as one of the oldest teams in the league? I think it's fascinating. You know, Tampa, Toronto, whoever gets out of there, especially if it's the Leafs, you know, they're considering that they're 
you know, that this could be their year just because of their first round failures. Um, you can never count out the lightning. And then the Metro for me is, you know, is, is, is six teams deep at this point. Um, and it's going to be really fascinating to see who gets out of there. So as always, whenever the Bruins go down to the, to the, to, to Broadway and, and, and Manhattan and, and play the Rangers, it's always, always a good game. And I would expect no less. Yeah, I it feels like once the playoffs start, nothing would really surprise you in the conference. A- any team could pretty Not much beat any team. The the Rangers have the star power and you know they have what they would consider, I guess, you know, Timur Vasilevsky, one of the best goalies in the world. So that sure. gives you that gives you a puncher's chance in any series. Now, where I think when you look at them against a team like the Bruins, they don't that that depth that the Bruins have really established this year. The Rangers are very reliant on their top guys, the Panarins, the Zabanajads, the Foxes. Those guys play heavy minutes for them, mm-hmm. and it seems like the depth further down in the lineup is where you got some questions, especially with. I mean, some of the kids have had their moments. You mentioned Keandre; he's he's a star in the making, I believe. Sure. But some of the kid forwards haven't been as productive as you would like them to be for the Rangers to really feel like they have the balance and the depth that they need to, to go on a run. Obviously, they went on a run last year, so so you wouldn't rule it out happening again. But I do believe adding at the trade deadline, not just one piece, but probably two or three is going to be important for the Rangers. So a lot of stuff to keep an eye on, Matt. I really, really do appreciate the time. This has been very insightful, and uh, hopefully we'll be able to catch up again sometime down the line. Absolutely, Vince. I'll be I'll be watching you, and and you know, Rangers are definitely going to be a player at the deadline. I mean, that's you know, I, I, everybody's talking about Patrick Kane, and you know, that's I think something that people think that they'll at least take a long look at. You know, that's that's a, a thing that won't go away because it seems like a good fit. You know, just the Panarin connection, and you know, getting another high end winger and, and making that power play even more dangerous uh, and deeper. I think um, would be really interesting. I and you got to wonder if Kane wants to do it, but all stuff that we'll be, uh, we'll be watching out for up here in Boston. I, I do believe that they will be in on Kane, but I'm not as bullish on it as I think a lot of people seem to be. I think the speculation has sort of taken a life of its own and mm-hmm. the Rangers are a team that next year, salary cap wise, they are, they're going to be really, really tight. So I don't think they're going to be in a great position to offer Kane an extension if he's looking for something like that. Anything I think they get at the deadline is going to be a rental. And Mm -hmm. listen, they've got picks to deal. They've got two first-round picks in the upcoming draft. So I could absolutely see them dealing one of those first-round picks. I think that is the top of their asset list that that will be available. But if Chicago or any team is going to be looking for them to, to deal off their young talent and sort of subtract to add. I don't think that's what I think they need. They need more depth. They need more forwards. And I think taking a guy out of the lineup to replace him with somebody else isn't necessarily what they're going to be looking to do. And, and Kane, even if you're, even if Chicago's retaining 50% is costly, whereas Mm -hmm. the Rangers, the Rangers have multiple needs and, you know, not a whole lot of cap space to fit everybody. So it'll be interesting. I, I, part of me is starting to feel more like they'll go the route that they went last year when they added four guys, no major stars, no huge names. I mean, Andrew cop was the biggest name that they got, but it wasn't anybody that was, you know, earth shattering. It was just depth that, that made that whole lineup so much deeper. And and I kind of feel like they're going to lean more in that direction than they will with a splashy guy like Kane, but we'll see. It's certainly interesting to talk about in the meantime. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it sure worked out for the Rangers last year, didn't it? <laughs> yeah, for sure. And I think that that's in the back of Chris Drury's mind, no doubt about it. So Yep. Cool. All right. All right, Matt. Thanks again, man. All right. Take care, Vince. 
And we're back. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Matt. Very much appreciate him coming on this week. And wow, I mean, after hearing that, you feel even more convinced about how legitimate this Boston team is. So hard to find a weakness for the Bruins right now. A lot can change, injuries, the play could dip off. Maybe some of these guys who are having career years that were sort of unexpected dip off, but right now they look like they're going to be a really, really tough team to beat and certainly the favorite, at least in the Eastern Conference. Colorado defending champions, they've had their struggles recently, no doubt about it, but when they're fully healthy and clicking on all cylinders, you have to feel like they have a good chance of beating anybody, but... Boston, with the way that they've been playing and the kind of season they're putting together, is certainly right there at the top of the list. And you look around the rest of the Eastern Conference, of course, Tampa, who's won the conference three years in a row. Of course, the Rangers, who feel like they are knocking on the doorstep or after what they did and accomplished last season. You look at Carolina, we know how good they can be. You look at Toronto, who... People are going to scoff at them because they never make it out of the first round. But Matt touched on it. If that team finally gets over the hump and wins a playoff series, get that monkey off their back, then all the momentum is on their side on top of all the talent that they have. And they have loads of talent. They're going to be a force to be reckoned with. You know, I don't think the Devils are quite there yet, but they would scare me if I were the Rangers and I saw them in a playoff series because of the matchup. We've talked about the speed differential and the skill differential there and how Jersey does seem to have an advantage and come at the Rangers in waves and create a lot of scoring chances against them. So that would be an easy matchup by any stretch. And then if it's Washington or Pittsburgh, obviously those teams are kind of over the hill, but they're still threats. Look at how the Penguins pushed the Rangers to the brink last season. So This Eastern Conference playoffs are going to be wild. It's a little boring from the standpoint that we already pretty much know who's going to make it. There's really only one competition for that final spot. Is it going to be the Islanders, the Capitals, the Penguins? You assume the Rangers should be able to hold on to a spot. They're in third place in their division right now. As long as they can stay out of that fifth, sixth spot in the division, they should be okay. But beyond that, there's not going to be a whole lot of drama going down the stretch in the Eastern Conference. But I think once those playoffs start, it's going to be dogfight after dogfight. So that is definitely something to look forward to. Of course, in the lead up to the playoffs, what everybody is interested in, and this week's questions that I received from you guys definitely reflected this, is the trade deadline. What are teams going to do? How are they going to change their rosters? How are they going to gear up for the postseason? And so with that kind of as the theme, all three questions that I picked to answer this week are in some way, shape, or form related to the trade deadline. Because again, we're a month and a half away from it now, and it seems to be the topic that everybody wants to talk about. So we're going to start with a question on that. And what was by far The question that seemed to come up most as I was scrolling through them just now is about Timo Meyer, the right winger from the San Jose Sharks, who I know Frank Saravalli from the Daily Faceoff mentioned this, I think, in a story earlier this week. And that really seemed to spark the rumor mill that the Rangers have interest in Meyer. Meyer is a guy that on paper 
fits exactly what they want. They want a right winger who scores. The guy has 25 goals already this season, which is a lot more than the guy we've talked about so frequently in Patrick Kane. He's eight years younger than Patrick Kane, only 26 years old. So there are all these different reasons, if you're the Rangers or if you're a Rangers fan, to feel like this guy would be a perfect fit. If you could put him on your roster with no salary cap concerns and none of the other things that, unfortunately, you do have to enter into the equation, he would absolutely be the most logical guy. But I have my doubts about whether they'll actually make it happen for a variety of reasons that we're going to go over now. Now, Meyer, at this point, is being paid $6 million as far as his average annual value is concerned. The Rangers through the accrual process, we're anticipating they're going to end up with around $7 million by the time we get to the trade deadline. Now, the disclaimer here is that with Julian Gauthier on the IR right now, on the injured reserve, the Rangers are still having to pay his salary, and that counts against the cap. So even though they're only carrying a roster of 22 players, they're actually paying 23 And that is hurting each day, little by little, the accrual process. Now, assuming that Gautier heals up pretty quickly, and he did skate in a non-contact jersey on Wednesday, so that's obviously a good sign. And they can take him off of IR and then send whoever they decide to send down and then actually be paying only 22 guys as far as the cap is concerned. Then they'll get right back onto that pace, and they should be okay comfortably getting to around $7 But These little hiccups or injuries or what have you, these things can throw that whole plan off. So right now we're anticipating if Gauthier is back soon and they can cut the roster down again, they will have about $7 in cap space by the time the deadline comes. And then you can fit Myers $6 million. You won't really have much room to do anything else except maybe if you could find a defenseman who gets paid around the league minimum. But that would pretty much be your only move. It would be a worthwhile move, no doubt about it, but here's where it gets complicated. The Rangers theoretically could fit him this season, and if you're only concerned with going for it this season, maybe you convince yourself that that's the way to go. But looking ahead, he's a restricted free agent this summer. His qualifying offer, if the Rangers were to extend the qualifying offer, is $10 million. Now, I see that there was a question here about how the qualifying offer works. Well, basically what the qualifying offer means is this. If you decide that you want to retain the rights to that player, you have to extend the qualifying offer. If you decline to extend the qualifying offer, that means you are forfeiting your rights to the player and allowing that player to become an unrestricted free agent. So if the Rangers wanted to look at Meyer as a pure rental. In theory, they could trade for him, not extend the qualifying offer, and let him become a UFA. But if you're talking about a player of that quality, a player that you're going to have to give up a substantial trade package to get, to simply wipe your hands clean and say, we could keep your rights, but we're not going to, that is bad business. So I do not think that that is an option for the Rangers. If they were to trade for him, they would have to extend the qualifying offer knowing that they can't pay it. The salary cap situation for them for next year is extremely tight. 
We're going to get deeper into this, I'm sure, as we get closer to the offseason. But the rough number everybody should keep in mind is the Rangers, as of right now, have 14 players under contract for next season and about $16 million left to fill the remaining eight or nine spots. So $16 million to pay eight or nine guys is not a lot of money. That averages to about $2 million per player. You cannot give one player $10 million. It just doesn't work mathematically. It's pretty much an impossibility. So their options, if they had him, they'd have to extend the qualifying offer just to retain his rights. But then they would either have to trade him again to another team or come up with some kind of an extension that's workable. What would an extension cost? Well, he's getting paid $6 million right now, and the qualifying offer is $10. You'd probably have to meet him somewhere in the middle. Let's say $7 to $8 million. If you paid him an extension that's worth $8 million a year, based on that $16 million that we said you're going to have to spend, you're eating up half of your available cap space to pay one player and then that leaves you with, let's say, $8 million to pay the other seven or eight players that you need to play, which, oh, by the way, includes Keandre Miller, Philip Heedle, and Alexi Lafreniere. That is an impossibility in my mind as well. So it all comes down to this. If the Rangers were to trade for Meyer, they would have to be willing to sacrifice at least one, more likely two, other core players. Are you willing to... Let's say let Heedle and Lafreniere go to add Meyer because that's essentially what you're looking at. Maybe you want to replace one of those guys with Kako. You know, some people might say, hey, could they trade Goudreau or could they trade Truba? Those guys have no movement clauses. It's highly unlikely that any of those veterans, the higher paid veterans like Kreider or Goudreau or Truba are going anywhere because those guys control their own destiny. They dictate where they can and cannot be traded. You would need their blessing to do it, and there's very little reason to believe that any of those guys want to leave. So you would probably have to sacrifice the young players who don't have the no-movement clauses, specifically the RFAs that you have coming up. And again, the three big ones are Miller, who I don't think they have any interest in letting him go anywhere. I'd say he is hands down the most valuable of the current RFAs for the Rangers when you look at the role that he's playing. So Miller's staying. He's up for a very substantial raise. I think he's going to land, I wrote this last week, in the 4 to $5 million per year range, maybe even push for a little more. But I think that that's a pretty rough, decent estimate that he'll be somewhere in the 4 to $5 million range. So again, this is all coming out of a, a pot if you want to make a pie chart of $16 million. If you're going to pay Keandre 4 or 5 well, then you only have 11 or 12 left to pay the rest of these guys. If you lose Philip Heedle, who's your third or second line center? Are you willing to give up on Alexi Lafreniere already, the number one overall pick in the draft just a few short years ago? You'd have to make sacrifices like that to keep a guy like Meyer, and that, I think, is the biggest reason why this trade is a long shot. Would I rule it out? No. For all the reasons that I listed, he's he's the exact ideal fit for what you want right now for a player on this roster. But there's just no way to envision the Rangers keeping him 
beyond this season unless they make significant sacrifices on this roster in other places. And I think it would be a two-for-one thing. I think you'd probably have to let two of your talented young players go. We're using Heedle and Lafreniere as an example right now to keep the one player in Meyer. And that's a tough pill to swallow. I don't know if that's the road that the Rangers want to go down. The other thing is to get him, I think it's going to probably require a first round pick and probably one of those highly talented young players. So are you willing to part with all that? Are you willing to let a first round pick go plus maybe Heedle plus maybe Lafreniere for this one guy? I don't know. For me, it feels like a really tall order. I would not want to trade for that guy unless I could keep him. And I know to keep him, I would have to make really, really difficult sacrifices in other places. So that's the the full picture that I want to paint. It's certainly something that I'm going to poke around on. It's certainly something to keep an eye on. It's certainly logical as far as the fit on this year's team. But there's a lot of other complicating factors in this. And I just think... We have to look at the big picture when you're talking about making a trade like that. All right, let's get to Nicholas Jans, who wrote, besides Laffey, who do you think have the highest odds of being traded away? It's interesting to me that so many people are starting to think that Lafreniere is somehow the most likely guy they're going to trade. I think it's highly, highly unlikely you're going to see Lafreniere traded at this year's deadline. If that were to happen at all, it would be an off-season move. But we talked about this, I think, a little bit on a previous episode. His value right now is low. Teams smell blood in the water. They see him getting scratched. They see that he hasn't scored a goal in 16 straight games. Anybody who makes you an offer for Lafreniere right now is going to be bidding low, trying to take advantage of the situation where he's not producing. And... I don't think selling low is a good philosophy, whether it's in sports or stocks or any other aspect of life. So I do not think the Rangers are looking at trading Alexi Lafreniere right now. I think that's more speculation and rumor that's just sort of getting dredged up because of the fact that he's struggling. So definitely not him as far as I'm concerned. If you're looking at guys on the current roster who have high odds of being traded? Well, I think they'd love to move Sammy Blaze's salary. He's getting paid more than a million and a half dollars. And if they could replace him with a guy who's getting paid half that, that would certainly help with their cap situation and how much they could fit at the deadline. And this is a guy who's become pretty much a healthy scratch for them. It looks like he's not going to play Thursday against Boston. The, the fourth line that I saw at Wednesday's practice was... Jimmy VC, Jake LeCision, and Johnny Brodzinski. So if Blay is going to be a healthy scratch for you moving forward, and then when Gautier gets healthy and you have to send somebody down, you have to wonder, is Blay going to be in that conversation to potentially get waived? So I'm not saying it would be easy to find another team to take him right now, but if you could, I think that's something the Rangers would certainly entertain. As far as the young forwards, the the talented guys, the first-round type picks or prospects that we've talked about, I think, to me still, if any of them are going to get dealt, Vitaly Kratsov 
is the most likely guy. Again, I don't think they're selling low on Lafreniere. Heedle is too valuable because he's a center and they need centers. And Capococco is your top line right winger right now. So I don't think any of those guys are going to be in trade conversations. I think if they were going to entertain offers for any of them, Vitaly Kratsov would be the most likely. But even that, to me, feels like more of an off-season move. I think, much like last season, the Rangers' preference is going to be trading draft picks, maybe prospects, but definitely draft picks, and not touching anybody on the current roster, unless it's a salary dump like Blay. So to me, they're not looking to subtract guys right now. They're looking to add. We feel like they need at least one more forward in their top nine. We feel like they need one more defenseman who can play in their top six. So they want to bring guys in that add to the depth. If you're also subtracting guys at the same time, you're not making yourself a deeper team. I think if you're talking about Kratzoff or more of a long shot Lafreniere, that's more of a conversation they're going to have this summer than I think it is a conversation you have around the trade deadline. But if I was ranking the young forwards as far as who's most likely to get traded at any point, I still think I would have Vitaly Kratzoff at the top of the list. All right, let's get to this final question from Eric Voss, who wrote, where do you think is the deepest jury will go dipping into the prospect pool to move for a rental? Does it stop with Matthew Robertson and Jaden Grube, or do we see it reach Zach Jones for the right player? Eric, I think as far as the prospects are concerned, we're talking about guys that are not in the NHL right now. Brennan Othman is pretty close to off-limits, but I think anybody else they would be willing to entertain. Will Cooley is a guy who ideally I'm sure they'd like to keep around. I know that they see him, whether it's later this season or next season, as a guy who should compete for a role in their bottom six and will bring that heavy, physical, hard-to-play-against game that they want to incorporate, and especially as they lose guys like Reeves, and they're probably not going to have Sammy Blay back next year if they want guys that are going to bring some physicality. Will Cooley is a guy who can do that on the cheap. So I think they'd like to keep Will Cooley around, but he's certainly not untouchable. But you can go down the list of pretty much any other prospect. Zach Jones, for sure, I believe they would be willing to discuss him in trade offers. We've seen that they don't trust him enough to put him in the NHL lineup for a couple years in a row now. So it's not like they're saving him for some big spot. They would have had him in the NHL lineup already if that was the case. They're playing Ben Harper over him right now because they clearly don't seem to think that he's ready or capable of holding down a consistent role at this point. So Zach Jones certainly could be involved in any trade conversation. Matthew Robertson certainly could be involved in any trade conversation. Other top prospects who come to mind, Dylan Grand, the young goalie, I certainly think they would entertain conversations for him. You know, they like these young, speedy, forechecking wingers that they have in the system, like Brett Berard and Adam Sakura, But those guys certainly don't fall into the untouchable category. Ryder Korzak, who's a talented young center, but wasn't able to stick in the AHL this year, I certainly think they would talk about him. Jaden Grube, you mentioned, absolutely think they would discuss him. Again, to me, the only guy who I think would take a massive haul for somebody to pry away from the Rangers is Brennan Othman. I think any of their other prospects would be within the realm of possibility 
at this point. I see someone else here had asked about trade chips. Again, to me, I believe that the Rangers' preference is going to be trading draft picks and then maybe some of those grade B and C prospects that we talked about over anybody on the NHL roster and certainly over a guy like Othman. Remember, the Rangers have two first-round picks. At least we're, we're thinking they're going to have two first-round picks because Dallas looks like they're definitely going to make the playoffs. So the Rangers should have two first-round picks in the upcoming draft. They got one of those from the Nils Lundqvist trade. I think in the right deal, absolutely one of those first-round picks will be in play. But I think that's the biggest asset that the Rangers have at the trade deadline. They're not going to trade Othman. They're not going to trade Lafreniere. They're not going to trade Heedle. They're not going to trade Kako. They're not going to trade Braden Schneider or Keandre Miller. So it's a first-round pick that they have to offer. Maybe some mid-round picks, whether it's in this draft or the next one. And then some of those B and C level prospects. I think that's what they're looking at. That is the asset pool, the resource pool that they have to work with right now. That probably makes guys like Kane and Meyer more long shots. Now, if they could go and get one of those guys by only giving up the first round pick and then a mid-level prospect, that's a conversation you have. But if those teams are asking for the first round pick and one of your top talented young players, whether it's Lafreniere or Kako, you know, all the names that we just mentioned, to me, that's a deal that you have to say no to for all the reasons that we talked about. For Kane, it's because he's an aging player on an expiring contract. You can't extend him. For Meyer, it's because you can't extend him unless you sacrifice not just one or two assets, but multiple assets. You would have to say goodbye, as we touched on, to a lot of those young players, potentially, at least I think two of them, to make him fit. So if they're asking for Lafreniere or Kako or Hedl, I'm certainly not going down that road if I'm Chris Jury. What I think, and I've said this repeatedly and I'm going to say it again here, what I think is much more likely from what I'm hearing and just what my gut feeling is, is that the Rangers are likely to explore many options, but will come back to the strategy that worked so well for them last year. And that is adding multiple depth pieces, plugging multiple holes, finding a right winger who you feel like has some scoring upside, finding a left-handed defenseman who can upgrade your bottom pair. Ideally, if you can fit a third guy, finding somebody who can inject your bottom six with some speed and some forecheck, a guy like Tyler Mott, who worked out great for them last year and might be available again this year. I think it's much more likely that you see them fill those spots with names that aren't as sexy or flashy as Kane and Meyer, but are cheaper. And by being cheaper, knowing they're going to have about $7 million in salary cap space to work with at the deadline, they can plug multiple holes. I feel ultimately that that is what Drury will end up doing. I could be wrong. I'm certainly not going to rule out Kane or Meyer or another big name. But based on what I'm sensing, I think that is the more likely path than a big, big splash and just spending all that salary cap space on one guy. We'll see. We have, again, a month and a half until we get to that trade deadline, so it's something we'll continue to monitor and continue to talk about. But as of the day of this recording, January 18th, 2023, that is how I feel. All right. With that, we are going to end this episode. They seem to keep getting longer recently. Am I getting too long-winded, or are we just having a lot of stuff to talk about? 
I'd like to think it's the latter, but if you guys think these are going too long, let me know. I'm certainly having fun, so I have no problem with it. I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. I appreciate each and every one of you. I try to remind you guys of that as often as I can. It makes this so much more fun to know that we have this loyal listenership that we've developed in the last few years. We're creeping up on episode number 100, so stay tuned for what we're going to do with that one. But episode 97 is over. I hope you guys are all doing well. I hope you're all taking care of yourselves, and I will talk to you next week.